just a few things to recap to give some greater sense to what Jack has just read for us. Uh, thank you, Jack, for, for, for reading there in chapter 20. Uh, just to set you up for the tragedy that we're in the midst of. Uh, chapters 19, 20, and next week, 21, that will be the last of our chapters in, in uh, the book of Judges, are the, are the final tragic ending to a, a, a fairly tragic book. Um, <clears throat> a Levite man, remember the Levites as a tribe, they're largely responsible for the worship practices of Israel. A Levite man and his concubine, again, for what the Bible has to say about that kind of relationship, I might have to get the recording next week, but a, a Levite and his concubine are traveling. And they specifically choose to stop in the Israelite town of Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin because they want to avoid the pagan town of Jabus. That's a little complicated because Jabus ultimately is Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem before, but at this point in time, because the Israelites have not pushed out the Canaanites from the land, Jabus, Jerusalem, is actually a pagan town. So they precise, specifically go around uh, Jabus to get to Gibeah. And there a kind old man in this town, though an out-of-towner himself, sees their plight in the center of the square uh, as they, as a family, they've gathered there, this man, this Levite, his concubine, and those with him, and gives them hospitality, brings them into his home, gives them food and drink. But in the middle of the night, a shocking incident occurs. Men from the town of Gibeah, all of them Israelites, pound on the walls of the old man's home, shouting for the Levite man, to be pushed out so that they can know him, as in as Adam knew Eve, to know him carnally, to sodomize him. In fact, that is just the first of the overwhelming hideous events of that story. Israelites are acting like sodomites. So that Judges 19, and then into Judges 20 and 21, this is worse than Genesis 19. Because those were outsiders acting like this. Now you have Israelite treating Israelite the way the Sodomites treated Israelites. But if that wasn't bad enough, the Levite, the Levite tosses his concubine out the door, and these perverted men of Israel repeatedly, violently rape and torture her throughout the night. The next morning, the Levite finds the woman on the doorstep of the old man's house. We're not told if she is dead or unconscious. He loads her on his donkey to head home, where he proceeds to seek justice by cutting her up into 12 pieces. Again, we're not told if she's dead or unconscious when he begins to cut her up. And sends the pieces of her body to the tribes of Israel to stir them into action so that he can get some kind of justice or maybe avoid some kind of justice. All of these things happen, we said, because God has long been forgotten by the people of Israel. There is no God to judge. There is no God to appeal to. There's no law that's on people's lips. There's no nobody worshiping anymore. Even the Levites who are in control of worshiping aren't worshiping right. 
Even the Levites are setting up their own worship altars and, and, and worshiping, of course, as we hear over and over again in the book of Judges. However their eyes see fit. However their hearts see fit. And it seems that God is active in these events by giving the people what they want. Once in a while you'll hear his name. Usually it's not Yahweh, it's Elohim. A more generic way of referring to God. But God seems to be active now by simply giving the people what they want so they can actually do what they seem to want to do, which is to do what's right in their own eyes. The result, an entire culture where everyone gets to do what's right in their own eyes, unless, of course, you have very little power like the concubine, and then other people are doing what's right in their own eyes to you. Because no more in the book of Judges are judges raised up. No more is God delivering his people. He's simply giving all the people what they seem to want. And the people have no desire for a king. They each want to be king themselves. And so this morning, we're looking at a, a, a grave distortion of what God's people certainly who we are to be as God's people, a grave distortion of what it really should look like. And sometimes I think, brothers and sisters, there's a profit in doing this. This, um, this message today, very consciously, is not going to be one of those messages where Pastor David uh, preaches a sermon that's based on the passage, and then he leads me gloriously to Jesus at the end. How he always ties things up in the bow, like, you know, I did, at, at its worst, you know, Pastor David's preaching is sort of like going to the dentist's office and, and uh, sort of uh, you turn the back of the highlight magazine and you play Where's Waldo? Right? Where's Pastor David going to find Jesus in the text? Part of what we need to do today is to see what the world looks like without Jesus. Now, I'd hope today that we would have a baptism so we'd end the day with joy. But today we're not. There may be profit in that. There may be something good about that. Hold on to Jesus Christ today. But let's go there. Let's see what the world looks like without him. This morning we're going to start with false witnesses. We're going to look then at the discommunion of the saints. And finally, hallowed be my name. Hear the distortions in there, right? We're not going to talk about giving, giving positive witness. What does it look like when there are false witnesses? What happens to a, a world, a culture? What happens when there's the discommunion of the saints? Not just disunity in the world, but in the church. Disunity. What does that look like? And finally, what it looks like when my concern is how it would be my name as opposed to his. So first, false witnesses. When the chapter starts, you can be forgiven for thinking, hey, there's a little bit of hope here. Or conversely thinking, these are the worst people in the world. Sort of one or the other. And uh, frankly, war often does this. War stories, war films. You know, some of us, I talked to some people, some people like war films and war stories. Um, some of us like them, some of us don't. Those of us who like them know that even though wars are always terrible, even though wars always involve tragic loss of life, 
We also know that sometimes the worst of human circumstances bring out the best in human nature. Worst stories often include pictures of great bravery, uh, great heroism, great sacrifice, the one sacrificing for the many, uh, the saving Private Ryan, and that sort of thing. In Judges 20, not so much. Not so much as a war story. At first, at first, something happens that seems really hopeful because it simply hasn't happened since the beginning of the book of Judges. And I think we're supposed to hear, hey, something good might be really happening here. Unity. Unity. Look at the first three verses. And the word all keeps being used there. All the people of Israel came out. We haven't seen that happen before. All assembled as one man. All the people of all the tribes of Israel are assembled to or before the Lord. But then you realize it's all except. It's all the people of Israel except one tribe. All but one. It's all the tribes except for Benjamin. So that it's not really all the people. It would be like a state refusing to show up at a national assembly or like one of our presbyteries saying that we have no use for the general assembly. We're not going. But crazier still, the town chosen for the meeting of this gathering of all Israel is Mitzpah. Mitzpah is in Benjamin. But Benjamin isn't showing up for the meeting. It would be like having a national meeting in Trenton, but nobody from New Jersey went to the meeting. That's weird. Benjamin didn't go. Then, not just because it was inconvenient, it was very convenient for them, but rather they were boycotting the judgment. They had determined to boycott the judgment. Benjamin is simply doing, you see, what they think that all the other tribes are going to do. Benjamin is saying, you tribes do what you tribes do. You do what's right in your own eyes. We're going to do, as the tribe of Benjamin, what's right in our own eyes. This is our judgment to meet out on what happened uh, with this, uh, this Levite guy. We're going to take care of it. You stay out of it. It's leading to a civil war. In fact, you start to see the fractures for a civil war right here because you have, look at verse 3, the people of Israel contrasted with the people of Benjamin. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the sons of Israel versus the sons of Benjamin, as if already Benjamin's no longer a part of Israel. So that's why they can say it's all Israel. Benjamin, by the way, they may have a point. Because notice how Israel is going to do justice by what's right in their own eyes. The first thing they do is to call a witness. Now, that's good. Deuteronomy says we should have witnesses. But then that's the problem. Deuteronomy says we should have witnesses. But they call one witness. One witness. And in verse Numbers, by the way, Numbers 35, it says that the death penalty for what happened to this young girl that was cut up and sent to all the tribes should be put on one man or all the men that were responsible, but not what a whole nation not on a whole nation for what if you did. But all of that is dropped. Why is that dropped? Why not two witnesses? 
Why not give justice to where justice is due for those who actually perpetrated it? Because God is forgotten. There's no one else to judge. So Israel's going to do what's right in their eyes. And the tribes have all got together, and that's how they're going to rule. So the Levite is called to testify, but look what he does. He's no exception. The Levite's going to do what's right in his own eyes. He stretches, then, the truth. He's selective with the facts. Did you notice? Facts have been included, but some facts have been left out as well. The truth has been tailored to fit an entirely new narrative. In his warped mind, the Levite has convinced himself that he is the principal victim. I'm the victim here. I need justice in the court of law. Now remember, in the author's account back in Judges 19, the writer of Judges tells us who committed the crime back in chapter 19, verse 22. It was a bunch of worthless fellows, we're told. Now, in the Levites' retelling, it becomes the leaders of Gibeah who did this. Notice the subtle power shift. He says that these men in Gibeah, they meant to kill me. Well, maybe that was their ultimate intention, but the stated fact was that they wanted to carnally know him. But when the Levite gives his testimony, now what was rape now becomes murder. He subtly shifted the charge. Then he goes on to say that they violated my concubine and she's dead, which may be technically true, but the way that he tells it makes it sound like the men of Gibeah, or the leaders of Gibeah, broke down the door, came in, dragged her away, rather than the truth, which was that he himself seized her on his own, and he threw her out to save himself. In short, he portrays himself as the aggrieved victim, the one who's been oppressed. He lays the blame for this abomination and outrage, as the, as the text says, entirely at the feet of the leading men of Gibeah, verse 6. They are the sole oppressors in the story. He's taken the high moral ground, but it's all pretense, and it's entirely for his own ends. So that Israel as a whole that is, is, is being manipulated, you see, by the testimony of one person. They're about to go to war on the testimony of one person. And there's no one else there. The old man could have been brought in who was there, who also heard the shouts from outside. He's not brought in as, a, as anyone to testify. His appeal to the assembly then in verse 7 is to give your advice and counsel based on what I've said. It's basically an effective call for them to take sides with him, the aggrieved man, against the men of Gibeah, so that they will take vengeance for him on his account. Think about that. Think about that. You know, the pebble never thinks it's responsible for the whole landslide. The pebble never thinks it's responsible for the whole landslide, but here it is. A civil war is about to break out, and justice will be com compromised. Notice, by the way, that the Levite now disappears from the story as of verse 7. Now we just have war. We never hear from him again, because getting justice for the concubine, getting justice even for the Levite, is not possible because justice can't be done without the truth. 
Whatever could have happened would fall short of complete justice because it would be based only on his half-truths. But more than that, for all of his assumed moral outrage, the result of his testimony is going to be horrendous. As Jack mentioned, the body count of what is about to happen based on this one man's pivotal lies. This is something that we've brought up with some regularity from the book of, of Judges. This will be the last time I, in a sense, apply this. And, but, it, but, it, but it's been building all along. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons that um, the Judges was chosen for this, this, this season. Because we're in a world of great confusion where, where who God is and, and the importance of God ruling and reigning, certainly in our hearts and certainly as a church, is being challenged all the time. Because when God does not rule or reign, this is what humanity does. Humanity takes justice into their own hands and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Which makes this, this book of the Bible incredibly relevant today because in a world that has forgotten God where truth can't be nailed down like for this Levite there can be power in being oppressed there can be power even in being a victim since the 1970s whole theologies have sprouted up and have been constructed that say that only the oppressed can see the truth they alone have the vision uh, the clarity, the wisdom to understand what is truth. Only they have the privilege of seeing the truth. And therefore, those in power are in a permanent state of oppressor, so they must repent, they shall be judged. Any, any sinner, any old worthless sinner, now becomes a powerful leader of Gibeah, you see, in the, in the words of, uh, uh, of the Levite. And, and therefore, an oppressor, and the oppressed becomes the one who alone can hold the truth and must be believed. Now, was the Levite oppressed by these men who banged on the old man's house? Yes, he was oppressed. He was a victim, absolutely. Was he a victim of these worthless men in Gibeah and what they did? Yes. But wasn't the truth also that he contributed just as much to the death of this concubine as they did? But there was suddenly more power in being the victim, you see, than there was to being the dominant, dominating force, as he himself was. Because with God long forgotten, you see, there are no more objective standards. And when there are no more objective standards, justice is always retributive justice. It's between me and you. And we're all, we're, we start to jockey for position about who is more right and who is more wrong and who has better standing in the court, and who has more experience, you see, and we start weighing these things, and the, and, and the scales never get righted. They, they, there's, 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 there's no way to do it. And no other witnesses need be called because it's my experience against your experience. You see, it becomes a justice in search of a standard that that now uses lived experiences, experiences of marginalization, so that retributive justice becomes the only kind of justice there is. Retributive justice becomes social justice. But if that means lying, a lying Levite can throw his concubine to the dogs to be raped and only has to prove that he was almost murdered himself, is social justice real justice? 
or at best is it only partial? Why are we even talking about this? The only reason that we're talking about this is this is what happens when God is absent, when there is no God, when there's no one who actually sees everything, when there is no God who actually knows everything, when there's no God who knows who knows every heart in the situation, when there's no God who can't know any of the motivations for any of the people involved. What you have is Judges 19, 20, and 21, where it's all about power. And if I have to get power from weakness, I'll do it. If I get power from being a victim, I'll do it. If I get if I get power from pull, being able to pull the levers and, 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 and having a system of which I'm at the top, I'll do it. Everybody's doing it. And is any justice being achieved? We, we, you, you saw it in, in uh, our, our call to worship. Uh, you, you all said it together as a people. The Lord watches over the alien. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. We need somebody who can do all of that at once. But when there's no God, how do we know? When there's only one witness, how do we know? How is justice even possible when there is no God? That's the problem. And when that happens, we no longer act as if we are the problem. And that's really the problem. That we are all alike sinners, that we are all alike liars, that we are all alike racist, that we're all alike power hungry, that we're all in need of forgiveness. All of that goes out the door. Only some people need those things, but I don't. Why? Because I'm going to judge by what's right in my own eyes. Don't miss the point. The people of God in Judges 20 are now living like the Sodomites. Boy, there's one thing you never wanted to be in the Old Testament. That's one name you never wanted to get. The, judge, the, the book of Judges is very subtly saying to the Israelites, Sodomite, all of you alike, if not in your actions and your judgments. People of now God do to each other what the pagans once did to God people. Without God, we are as bad as they are. We will be as divided as they are. We will be without hope or peace as they are, without real justice as they are. We will be as morally confused as they are. In some ways, you will feel just right, feel right, and feel morally superior, but there will be other places where you give yourself a pass because you're always going to do what's right in your own eyes. This gets very, very personal for the church. The culture, you see, might adopt social justice alone, but we can't. One of the key doctrines of the church, the church of the Reformation for sure, is that God delivers his people, delivers justly by, the, by his power, using his word, to preach Christ alone, we call it sola scriptura. The Bible functions as the only rule and guide of faith and practice. But the Bible cannot function as a sufficient guide to faith and practice if the truths of the Bible are only acceptable and accessible to a certain demographic group. If we get to the point where only, only certain people who have certain lived experience have access to certain truths that they can see in the Bible and other people can't, once we reject appeals to reason and evidence and witnesses, as the Bible encourages us to do, because we think they are thinly veiled, um, um, thinly veiled uh, uh, bids for power 
and a part of an old privileged system. We have effectively discarded Scripture in favor of some other standard of judgment, whether it's lived experience or emotions or political memory or political expedience, and the list goes on and on and on. This is the problem with social justice. It becomes the very negation of justice. Plain old justice, meaning that there is one who sees all, knows all, who is right, who knows what's true and just and what is not, and will ultimately judge, you see, so that you and I can forgive. If I know that I'm likely wrong and a sinner, and you know that you're likely wrong and a sinner, and we have a, we have a disagreement over something, or we see things very, very differently than we can in humility come to each other and say, there are a whole bunch of things I don't know about you. Don't know about your experience. Don't, I, I think I'm right, but I always think I'm right. But I also know I have a board, you know, plank just like going up and down out of my eye. And you probably have the same thing. And if you confess the same thing, we can come together over a meal or over the meal, you see. And we can honor the Lord equally and forgive and love one another, knowing that he alone is going to judge it. But if we come to that same, that, that same conversation, and there is no judge, and God has forgotten, and you're going to do what's right in your own eye, and I'm going to do what's right in my own eye, it becomes a plank sword fight, <laughs> where we just keep missing each other. We keep scarring each other up with the splinters of our planks, and we walk away, and we, we will not be one body anymore. Then the world is one. And that's on. And that's on. It's been on since way back 1,400 years before Jesus in the book of Judges. It's just coming back again. It's just coming our way again. We have to see it, you see. Friends, when God has forgotten, everyone does justice according to their own eyes, their own lived experience, their own convenience, whatever privileges their perspective just like our lying Levite did. Point two, <clears throat> the discommunion of the saints. Well, after our lying Levite friend tailors his truth and addresses 11 of the 12 tribes, there's this incredible irony that's going on. We've already noticed the word all. All Israel keeps getting repeated. But more than that, it keeps getting repeated that Israel, for the first time in a very long time, arises as one man. Did you hear that? It's in verse 1. It's again in verse 8. Now again in verse 11. Israel is as one man. And we've been told back in verse 1 that they come out of, you can see this on the back of the, there's a little map of this part of Israel, because all Israel is coming together. They we're told that from Dan, way up here, down to Beersheba, way down there, all, all Israel is coming together. And um, <clears throat> that, that for Israel, the phrase from Dan to Beersheba is like someone who lives here on the east coast of the United States saying, from Maine to Florida. It's a way of saying, from Maine to Florida, everybody, everybody in between, all Israel's come together. It's that whole stretch. So God's people are motivated, you see, by this injustice that's been done in Benjamin. Everyone got their body part. Everyone got the message. Everyone's horrified. No one's ever seen anything like this before. That's because before this, people hadn't forgotten God to this extent. 
and they appear to do something very important, but very confusing at the same time. They go to Bethel and they inquire of the Lord. Look at verse 18 closely. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now that's a very interesting response. You're supposed to hear an echo, very familiar echo. Put your finger um, here in Judges 20. Flip back to the first chapter. In fact, flip back to the first chapter, the very first verse, page 254, the blue Bible's there if you're using them. Hear the echoes of verse 1 of the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the wonderful deliverance of Joshua, getting, bringing the people into the, to the promised land, things are going to start anew. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. But here in chapter 1, Israel was united. Here in chapter 20, they really are divided. They're not together. Civil war. Yes, they seem to be gathered as one man, but now it's 11 tribes versus one. There in chapter 1, they were fighting Canaanites. Here they're fighting one another. Back then they were told to remove the influence of the Canaanites from the land of promise so that the people could live under God's justice. Here they use Canaanite logic to execute not justice, but vengeance. Back then they were acting on orders that they'd been given by Joshua. Here they're acting under the influence of the lying Levite who sowed the seeds of confusion. Back in chapter 1, they were promised a victory. Here they are not. In chapter 1, verse 2, the reply was, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given Israel into his hand. Here it's simply, Judah shall go up first. In chapter 1, that was God's ordained justice. Here they've already come up with their own justice plan. They're going to start a civil war, and now they want God to come along and give them the approval for it. God, this is what we're going to do. Who should we send first? It's not like they asked, should we even do this? So God is giving them over to what's right. Oh, the plan was, oh, we just send Judah first. Send Judah first. That is what is so sad here. The, for the entire book of Judges, the tribes were together to go into the promised land and together remove the Canaanites and their false worship and their ugly and sinful and murderous practices so that in this new holy place, a holy God could dwell with his holy people together. And yet they never showed the least inclination to get together on anything. Against the enemies oppressing them, they never found that unity. But against one of their own tribes, they, they're coming together almost spontaneously as one man. How are we to apply this? What does it mean to us? Earlier, Amy read for us part of 1 Corinthians 5, the church at Corinth. Let's go to a bit more modern kind of situation, and let's look at a church. Let's look at the church at Corinth, because the church at Corinth was always fighting. They were always fighting amongst themselves. They were always in conflict. They were often divided, and there were continual moral lapses. The letters to the Corinthians show the disunity of the church in the New Testament better than any other letters do. 
Now, as discouraging as that is, I, I love what David Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said something about 1 Corinthians that, that, to me anyway, is extremely encouraging. He said, there are very few churches that are vital enough to even need to read First and Second Corinthians. That's a challenge. His, his point was that in order to need to read First and Second Corinthians, you have to be evangelizing Corinthianizers. You have to bring some unbelief into your church. You have to bring some pagans into your congregation. You have to, well, do some hospitality, bring people in among you so that your church actually has disputes, actually has to confront moral lapses, actually has to deal with Benjamin-like people who still have pagan habits. Think about that. This is interesting. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says that if your average church certainly your average church that's forgotten God, doesn't do evangelism, doesn't do hospitality, doesn't welcome the lost, doesn't bring them to church. You can't just kind of skip First and Second Corinthians. You don't need them at all. If your theology is just like the culture, if you almost never disagree with the surrounding culture, it's views on sexuality and justice and gender your church is just not vital enough to ever need to read First and Second Corinthians. You won't have any conflict. The way that Paul handled having unity among such a diverse community in the Corinthian church was to make sure the Corinthians remembered who they were in Jesus Christ. That that's what bound them together. Why is it in, in, in the midst of all this division in the book of Corinthians, that's where Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. Because it's this great reminder who we really are. Why does he talk in the middle of the letters of the Corinthians about the resurrection? Because we all need to be raised from the dead. See, it, it gathers us together. It pulls us together. So that they would not forget the Lord. You see. In 1 Corinthians 5, 2, for example, he talks about this man who's living with his father's wife. Could be his mother, could be a stepmother. We're not sure. Perverted either way. Paul says, shouldn't you have been filled with grief? He's writing to the church. Shouldn't you have been filled with grief and put, put him out of your fellowship? Notice it doesn't say, shouldn't you have been filled with anger and put him out of your fellowship? It doesn't say, shouldn't you have been condemned, condemned him? Shouldn't you have been filled with indignation? No, it says, shouldn't you have been weeping? Shouldn't you have been mourning? Shouldn't you have been filled with incredible sorrow and put him out of your fellowship for purposes of holiness? That's in 1 Corinthians 5.2. But then in 2 Corinthians 2.5, you see the reverse and probably talking about the same man. Paul says, if you've caused someone grief and the judgment is sufficient for him, now forgive him and comfort him that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Reaffirm your love for him. If he's repented, forgive him so that Satan might not defeat us. But you see, what's involved in repentance, what's revolved in bringing him back in, it's, it's who the Lord is. It's what Jesus has done. You can't repent to who? God. Forgiven by whom? God. God is part of the whole situation. That's what brings us together. Not forgetting who he is. We can't forget who the Lord is, brothers and sisters. What we're saying here is that we are sinners. Sinners are going to sin, and if the church is going to do its job right, 
we will only be adding sinners to our community. And if we forget God, by the way, that will divide us. If there is no God, I'm going to decide that your sin is worse than my sin. Because I'm going to decide what's right in my own eyes. Your sin's always worse than mine, if there is no God. But if I have to stand before God and I have to come to this table and I have to say I'm a sinner just like you are, I can't do that anymore because there's God. It's really that, it's really that simple. We need to have the communion of the saints. That we're all alike sinners and we're all alike saved by grace. Final thought. Hallowed be my name. <clears throat> the, the great dark, cynical, near humorous, but dark irony, don't miss it, is built into the whole story of these events. What is it that finally gathered God's people like never before in the book of Judges? What finally gathers this many warriors? Think about it. Think about all the, all the judges. Think about Gideon trying to gather up warriors. Think about Samson. Samson could never get anybody to come with him. He had to do all by himself. All the judges in between. Think about Deborah's song where she's like, where are the warriors that are going to fight? There were never enough warriors. Civil war. Do you see that there are warriors coming out of every, everywhere? Everyone, suddenly everyone's a great shot. Nobody shot anything, anything in the book of Judges. You know, People are you know, stabbing people with knives and coming down out of poopy shoots and all kinds of cool stuff that's happening and Samson's doing all his great stuff. Nobody shot, shot anyway. Suddenly, left-handed people are doing it, you know, behind the back and hitting hairs and stuff like that. You're supposed to be laughing at this because you're saying, where did these guys finally come from? What finally got them all together was one woman cut into 12 pieces. What a horror. That's what did it. Only that heart could shake the people up, except Benjamin. Didn't shake them up. How come? Our elders will tell you that since I've returned from sabbatical, at every session meeting we've done a devotional on church discipline. And it was a study that, that I, I, I decided I wanted to do during the course of the sabbatical that you gave me, and I, I did a, a message on that, but I had so much stuff. So many passages that I just kind of determined on my own that elders are the ones in the church that actually do church discipline. We'll do as a study, and we're still doing. Months later, we're still doing it at every session meeting. We're doing a little study on on church discipline. One of the one of the reasons we're doing it, and I've heard this over and over again. Thankfully, not here at Hope Presbyterian Church. Is but one of the reasons I hear churches don't do church discipline is the Benjaminite reason. Hmm. Yeah, that person's a problem, but he's my nephew. Yeah, he's my you know he's, he's he shouldn't have done that, but he's my sister's brother-in-law. Yeah, she shouldn't have done that, but she is my granddaughter. It's, it's, it's why we need diligent and godly leaders. Benjamin could have avoided the civil war if they had disciplined the men of Gibeah. Because they'd just done what they were supposed to do. 
They were related, though, to these wicked men. So they decided, yeah, no, we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. They're at the same tribe. In this case, blood ties meant more than their identity in Christ. Why did their blood ties mean more to them than who they were in God? Because God is forgotten. It's that simple. When there is no God, that's what we're going to do. And often the reason the churches don't do church discipline is those relationships to people that we know are more important than the Lord and who he is. It's the same for us. Anytime that a congregation like ours shuts our eyes to sin because of connected ties of blood, of race, of relations, of favoritism, of kinism, and refuses to exercise discipline, it's destructive. And it's, it corrodes, you see, unity. And to parents, by the way, anytime you shut your eyes to your own child's sin and you blame the teacher, you blame their friends, you blame the police, you blame the court system, instead of seeing and addressing the sin that's right in front of your own eyes and in your child's heart, it has a deep and corrosive effect. Benjamin, all Israel, Corinth, when we don't police and clean up our own house, we lie about the biggest truth of this chapter. And the problem is with the people of Israel and the people of Hope Presbyterian Church is me and who I am before a holy God. But if I'm the problem and you're the problem and you're the problem and you're the problem, the elders are the problem and our kids are the problem and everybody's the problem. But there's one who is not and has come all the way down to give us a solution for the problem. We'll be more than just fine. We'll be messengers of grace. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for this fantastic book of, of Judges. Um, the, the, the battles, the, the battle strategy, the way that Benjamin was drawn out by the people of God and the, the, the Levite and the way he twists the truth and the way the, the, the horrifying impact of the Civil War um, and, and, and the blood that is shed and the stark reminders of who we are without you. Lord, we need this. We need this today. Because it's so easy, Lord, for us to go out of the world, go out in our jobs, go out among friends and leave you behind as if you don't matter and that we can find some sort of common wisdom with others. Lord, this, this book teaches us that if we do that, we will become like even the Sodomites in our thinking and our heart. May we trust only in Christ. In his name we pray.